Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why? We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors, and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby. Hello and welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. I'm Dominic Frisby and we have a longer than usual show for you this week, but it's well worth the effort. We talk to the inspiring Doug Casey, Callum Baxter of Greatland Gold and Rick Van Nawenhazer of Nova Gold tell us their stories. And finally, Michael Hampton and Tim Newding compare 2007 to 1987 and we all know what happened then the usual reminders one you can subscribe to the show via iTunes and have shows automatically sent to your computer or iPod as soon as I upload them just click on the subscribe with iTunes button at commoditywatchradio.com and you're pretty much there two nothing in this show constitutes advice to buy or sell anything it's an expression of opinion only and three companies do pay a fee to a appear on the show for which we thank them gratefully because without that fee we wouldn't have a show you're listening to commodity watch radio with dominic frisby well his newsletters have been topping the tippers ratings for some 27 years he's a multiple best-selling author publisher professional speculator and a globetrotter talking to me now from his home in Colorado. It's my pleasure to welcome to the program Doug Casey. Doug, it's July 2007. Uh, we've got the Dow, the S&P, the FTSE, the UK housing market, base metals, oil, uranium, all at or near all-time highs. Where are we in the grand scheme of things? Well, uh, it might be good to look at this from a, a bit longer perspective. Um, the current bull market in almost everything uh, except for, except for common stocks started in 2000 2001 uh gold was 250 275 and uh a lot of these mining stocks were selling for less than the cash they had in the bank so we've been in a a mining stock bull market now for about 7 years that's a good long time and I think during that period, the average mining stock, uh, junior, has gone up five, perhaps ten times in price. Uh, if, if a bull market has three stages, and I think uh, you can say that they do, the three stages are the stealth stage, the wall of worry stage, and the mania stage. And from about 2000 to 2003, uh, the gold stocks, the mining stocks in general, were in a stealth bull market. Uh, it had been a full generation uh, since they'd last peaked, and uh, nobody even knew they existed. Uh, well, very few people did at that point. Uh, and, and that was the time when uh, it was most uh, worrisome to invest in them, but obviously in retrospect it was the best time to be in them. Uh, then in 2003, the market changed a little bit, and people looked around and said, oh, my God, these stocks, so many of them have gone 5 or 10 to 1, uh, which many had by that time. 
and uh, now we entered the wall of worry stage, which is where we still are from 2003 to the present moment. And the wall of worry stage of a market is where people can see that something's happened, and now there are lots of arguments uh, being made that maybe it'll go up, maybe it'll go down. Uh, you know, China and India are going to continue consuming more. Uh, and then people say, no, no, that's a bubble. They're going to blow up. And uh, people say, uh, you know, gold is going to go up because the dollar is turning into toilet paper. And other people say, no, the dollar's gone down so much. So there are these arguments. The bulls and the bears are fighting. I think what's going to happen is we're going to go into a mania stage, absolutely for gold uh, and uh, to a lesser degree for silver, but actually for all the resources. The public is not involved in this market yet. So I guess to answer the question, and I've just spoken to, uh, to, the, uh, to the metals so far. I've got some opinions on all these markets, though. Uh, it's that uh, the easy money has been made. The big money is still ahead of us, but it's going to be increasingly dangerous and increasingly volatile. And I think we're going to get out of this wall of worry stage any time. I think it's going to happen within the next year, and it's going to be like the Internet bubble in the late 90s as far as these mining stocks are concerned. I noticed you said that um, silver's not going to go up quite as much as gold. Why do you say that? Well, I'm uh, very uncertain about that. I, you know, we can build an argument that silver could do better than gold, well, the reason for that being, of course, that it's a much smaller market in terms of dollar value, and that uh, smallness makes it a much more volatile market. Uh, but the problem with silver, from my point of view, is that it's an industrial metal more than a monetary metal. It's, not, it's only a secondary monetary metal. And, you know, uh, all of these industrial metals have done so well. They've run up so far that... Uh, you know, I don't want to make big bets that they're going to go up a lot further at this point. I'm not saying they're going to crash necessarily. It's just that they've reached what seems to be an equilibrium level. And I only like to speculate on things when I figure in my subjective mind the chances are 9 out of 10 that I'm right, and that if I'm right, I could get 10 to 1. And uh, I'm friendly towards silver. Uh, it's just that I'm looking at it more as an industrial metal than I am a, a monetary metal. Gold is where the action is really going to be. I must admit I'm of the same mind. I was very, very bullish about silver about maybe a year ago, but this, I don't know what it is, but there's something in my inner self is telling me that gold is the place to be at the moment. Base metals have had their run. Yes, my spider sense tells me that too. Um, the base metals have had their had their run. Maybe they're going to go higher, maybe they're going to go lower, but, you know, these even even odds kind of bets are not uh, the kind of bets I like to make. And I'm friendly towards silver, because it's actually been a bit of a laggard for the base metals, but gold is where it's going to be, because I think we're looking uh, at a monetary crisis, uh, a financial crisis, maybe an economic crisis, I think, of world historic proportions. I mean, this could be something coming up very close. That could be the most serious thing that's happened since the 1930s, probably including the 1930s. Uh, I'm I'm very bearish on uh, the economy, uh, which is one reason, uh, not the only reason by any means, but one reason to be uh, very bullish on gold. Yeah, I noticed, in fact, today um, 
the Huey was up 13 or 14 dollars and the S&P and the Dow were actually down. That's a divergence we haven't seen for a while. Yeah, you know, the thing is, is people forget that um, back in 1982, uh, the Dow was selling for less than 1,000. And it's gone up 14 times in that in that period. Now, of course, the prices of everything has gone up since then, but the stock market's been a, a sterling performer. And if you want to make money in the markets, you've got to buy low and sell high. And as a general rule, I tend not to buy markets that have gone up that much in that period of time. And where everybody's uh, pretty, still really pretty bullish and enthusiastic. Now, can the market go higher? Yeah, sure, because uh, they're pumping out so much paper money around the world that money's got to go someplace. So, but once again, I don't want to make a bet on it. I, I, I only try to make bets when I really feel confident that I'm right, number one, and number two, that if I'm right, I'll get a multiple on my money. And you just can't say that about any of the stock markets today, with with the exception of the mining stocks. I think, and I think they're a special situation. Mm-hmm. Now, when you describe uh, this, you know, third phase blow-off that you think is coming, perhaps sooner sooner than you think, uh, what's going to drive that? Well, there's a number of things that could happen. Uh, you know, from a political point of view, uh, I wonder that the world isn't very much in the same situation now as it was in the late 1930s. Uh, these wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, are, are in, uh, unfortunately, may be a prelude to a much bigger war against Islam between uh, the U.S. mainly and, and Islam. Uh, I don't see that going away. And, of course, the U.S. is stuck in Iraq and, Iran, uh, and, uh, and Afghanistan like it's like punching a tar baby. It was almost, I mean, Bush is not an intelligent man, but this was uh, perhaps the most stupid thing that he's done since he's been in office. And there's no good end to it, even withdrawing. So this is something that's going to get worse. And uh, uh, the consequences of an extended war against uh, uh, Islam itself is, uh, I don't think it's going to be good for, for the markets. One thing, another thing that I'm looking at that's very problematical is all these governments around the world really are pumping up their currencies, uh, just, just creating scads of, uh, uh, of these things. And this is the real reason why we've had this bull market, not just in stocks, uh, but in real estate all over the world besides. And I'm, uh, I'm generally pretty bearish towards real estate. In fact, the only place in the world I really am interested in owning real estate now that I'm not on the sell side is Argentina. Why? Because if the going really gets rough and ugly, the nice thing about Argentina is it's out of harm's way down there in the southern hemisphere. They don't get involved in all these adventures that the U.S. and the British government does. And uh, property prices are extraordinarily cheap, and it's, an, and it's a commodity-driven country. Uh, they're running huge balance of trade uh, surpluses, balance of payment surpluses. Even their government's running a, a fiscal surplus, which is uh, extraordinary for, uh, for a South American government. 
So I'm, I'm, but with a few exceptions like that, I'm not interested in real estate anymore. It's just, it's, it's a bubble. The whole world is in a financial bubble. That's, that's the way I see it. But if the money supply keeps on growing at current rates, prices can't go down. They're only going to go up, surely. Yeah, that's, 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 yes, in the long run, that's correct. But the problem with the money supply growing the way it has been is it creates distortions in the market, misallocations of capital in the market. And uh, uh, inevitably, as the money supply grows, long-term interest rates head up because people won't lend long-term at 5% if they can see their money is losing value at 10 to 15%, so interest rates go up. And that's going to devastate the real estate markets, uh, not just because it's going to have to compete with 15% money, which is never good for uh, an asset that actually has positive carrying costs like taxes and maintenance, uh, forget about the interest, but, but because the whole world is very, very much in debt, and there's a lot of mortgage debt, and a lot of people aren't going to be able to crack their mortgage nut uh, with interest rates any higher than they are, and that's happening even as we speak, just with the relative, just just with readjustments of mortgages right now, which are trivial to what's coming. Now the real estate market could be in big trouble, and the real estate market is much bigger than the stock market. I know it, it could all it could all come unglued. But if you're if you're a politician and you're in power, your main um, objective is to stay in power. And in order to stay in power, you want to keep the voting public happy. And in order to keep the voting public happy, you have to keep them feeling rich. So you don't want to destroy what for most people is their prize asset, their house. So surely, given a choice between protecting your currency and protecting the real estate market, you're going to give the impression that you're going for the former, but in reality, you're going to protect the latter. Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, that is the most important thing on these people's minds is, is uh, staying in office. And the way you stay in office is by make, giving the appearance of, of everything being hunky-dory, especially with the housing market, which is where many more people are. But, you know, they, they can't control interest rates. And by continuing to pump up, by bailing out, uh, corporations that might be involved in real estate uh, uh, and so forth, by continuing to create more money, they're going to drive long-term interest rates higher. People forget that uh, the dynamics of this thing were the same uh, back in the early 80s, and still interest rates went to 15 and even 20% back then. Uh, they didn't want it then. They won't want it now. But the market's bigger than these people are. So you know, we, one thing we've got to consider here is that interest rates have been going down since they peaked in the early 1980s. They've been going down for more than a full generation. And these things are cyclical. I think they're heading back up in earnest. And when interest rates go back up in earnest, that's going to have a lot of consequences for the markets, and they're not going to be good. I remember talking to a friend of mine who's a financial advisor and he was saying he in the 19 in the early 1990s I think it was either 1990 or 1991 he was selling 12% mortgages and he couldn't sell them quick enough they flew off the shelves. Hmm. <laughs>
well, I think the twelve percent mortgage would would destroy half the nation's wealth. I think. Yes. Well, not only would it hurt real estate, but uh, bond prices fluctuate inversely with interest rates. So long-term interest rates double or triple. Bonds are going to fall. There, they'll be devastated. But like I said. Uh, trying to predict uh, the overall direction of interest rates or the stock market, it's a tough thing to do. It just seems to me that from a historical uh, perspective, bonds are extremely pricey today. Interest rates are much lower than they ought to be. The stock market's higher. Uh, I'm just not interested in most investments today. Look, we've had more than a full generation of really, really good times and a lot of those good times have been created by uh, a monetary bubble that's been pumped up over the last decade. So, uh, uh, no, I'm, uh, I'm uh, looking to conserve capital and get out of these places that, uh, that have run up so far so fast. Gold is, believe it or not, about the cheapest asset around today. Uh, I mean, I have to say, Doug, I mean, if you've got a little stockpile of cash, you know, where do you put it? The, as you say, the real estate market is expensive. Base metals have gone up. Banking stocks uh, are expensive. Bonds are expensive. Where do you put it? Gold. Well, yes, I, I've got to say that. And, and I've got to, um, I've got to uh, make an addendum to that. It's that uh, it's very important not to have all of your assets in the country where you live and where you have citizenship. Because the most dangerous thing confronting everybody in the world today are these damn governments all over the world. Um, so it's very important to have a significant amount of your assets outside the grasp of your own government. Uh, your own government treats you like a uh, possession, like an asset that they can manipulate, like a cow they can milk. Uh, it's much better to be have that money in another country where you're treated as an honored guest or as a tourist that has to be pampered. So, yes, uh, the most important place to have your money is gold, but also it's important to have it outside of the country where you live and are a citizen. So, um, let me ask you about another one of your favorite commodities, which is uranium. Now, you were one of the first people to notice, you know, that, the, that there was a potential in this sector. And, I mean, it's gone from, what, $7 to 135 I think it is at the moment? Well, yeah, it's a little, it is, it's gone down a few bucks in the last uh, couple of weeks. But uh, that's, that's, that's roughly correct. That's right. And uh, I, I was a... I wrote a, a long paper on uranium, 16 closely written pages on uranium and nuclear power and the stocks and all this back in 1998. So I was early, no question about that. But, you know, it's been exceptionally rewarding. Uh, and the reason I was bullish on uranium was, well, first of all, uh, a lot of reasons, but uh, uh, nuclear power. I've always been a very big bull on nuclear power. It's always been the, the by far the cleanest, the safest, and the cheapest form of mass power generation. And uh, a lot of this echo hysteria that's been going around in recent years. I mean, it's, it's, uh, technology uh, wins out in the end, and 
So I think that there are going to be hundreds of new nuclear plants that will be built over the next couple of decades, primarily in places like China and India, but here in the U.S., everywhere in the world, as a matter of fact, because it's the only technology that makes sense for mass power. And right now, there's still a massive uh, supply-demand deficit in uranium. Uh, we're, we're burning not quite twice as much uranium as being mined, so that the world's living out of inventories. So something's got to give. And uh, price is going to go up until uh, you, you can mine a lot more uranium to cover that difference, in addition to the fact that the uh, demand is going to be rising. And it takes a long time to put a uranium mine into production. You know, uh, during the uranium boom of the 1950s, if you found a uranium deposit, in those days, you could put a mine into production in a matter of a couple, three years. Now it takes you at least a decade because of all the uh, uh, greenism and echo hysteria and, and, and permitting and all this type of thing. So, uh, no, uranium uranium's a bit of an exception. Uh, it's run up an awful lot, like copper and nickel and lead and zinc and moly. Uh, but I'm more bullish on uranium still than I am on those other base metals. It's a special case. It's uh, very interesting that the uranium stocks had a massive run um, and that then it kind of was really sparked off by the by the flood at Cigar Lake and that, and that kind of run suddenly went into a, a full-scale sprint and that sprint continued, I don't know, until about March or April and then they've had quite a big um, correction ever since then but the actual price of the uranium commodity itself has continued to go up. Yes, uh, and of course, I'm, I'm uh, like very few people speculate in the commodity uranium itself. Uh, it's, it's traded uh, in a retail investor. It's possible to, to buy an ETF for it or uh, so forth, but uh, for stocks, and, and you know, uh, five or six, only five or six years ago, there were uh, 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 there were only about oh ten uranium stocks in the world that you could buy really. Now there are about four hundred and fifty, and there's more every day. I mean they're growing like mushrooms after a storm. And most of these so-called uranium companies don't have any uranium except in the the name on their stock certificates. Uh, and this is a major reason why uh, the stocks have been weak. Um, so I think you've got to go for the quality with uranium stocks because most of them are just junk. They're just promotions. They're companies uh, where the management was unsuccessful doing something else. They thought uranium was hot, so they changed that into a uranium company and uh, go out looking with their Geiger counters and so forth. But um, that's the bad news about uranium stocks. The good news about them is, is that the public is not involved in these things at all yet that I can determine. And uh, I think that uh, as oil prices go higher, and they are going to go higher for a number of reasons, I think, uh, shocking as that may be, uh, I think that uh, the public is going to get the bit in its teeth and we could have a real hysteria, not just, in, not just in gold stocks, but in uranium stocks too. And I think in junior oil stocks as well, that's possible. Although the problem with oil is that it's such a political commodity, these governments can do anything. I mean... 
uh, you know, tax the profits away and so forth. Yep, that's what happened to our uh, North Sea oil companies. Yes, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I just can't understand uh, when I think about what goes on in the world. Uh, it's just disgusting to me what whip dogs the average citizen are. I mean, they just do whatever these damn governments tell them to do. And the uh, citizens give these governments well over 50% of their income, and they don't, they don't uh, complain at all when the government basically uses it to buy a rope to hang them with. It's uh, disgusting, frankly. I mean, it's shocking to me how, how prosperous the world could be if uh, the size of these governments was cut down by, oh, I'd say about 90% for openers. <laughs> I kind of agree. I, I, I look at my own government and my own council, which is actually one of the better ones, and I see the money they spend, and I think if I could have the tax I paid you, I'd spend it so much better than you do, even if it was on, you know, community yeah, things. Yeah, well, it's... it's stolen money. It's, I mean, they stole that money from you and from me, frankly. And I don't care if uh, 50% of the people vote to steal the money from the other 50, or 51% vote to steal it from the other 49%. It's still theft, philosophically. And uh, when, when you're spending someone else's money, you're not nearly as prudent with it as you are if it's your own. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Now, we, we, we touched on oil there, Doug. Now, um, one of my listeners has asked me to ask you this. He is extremely bearish on the American suburbs because they're so dependent on the car and therefore they are highly vulnerable to the rising oil price and also the falling dollar. What future do you see for the American suburbs? I think, I think your uh, inquirer has uh, got a good nose. He's absolutely right. Uh, these uh, suburbs uh, are full of over-indebted people, full of mortgage debt. They're not going to be able to crack the net on, full of credit card debt. And worse than that, actually, uh, they've got very energy-inefficient houses that cost a huge amount to heat and cool. And they've got to drive long distances in their rather uneconomical cars. I see oil going much higher, quite frankly, at this point both for basic geological reasons, uh, for economic reasons, the development of uh, the third world, India, China, and other places are going to be using much more oil. And third, I'm, I'm, I actually am a believer in peak oil theory. I hate to say that because, you know, in a free market world, there'd, there'd be no shortage of anything. I mean, uh, uh, the biggest resource we have is uh, not stuff buried in the ground, it's human ingenuity. And so, uh, But... That being said, the, 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 there is something to, to peak oil. So yes, and, and these, these, uh, all these Americans that have these, I hate to use the word unsustainable because it's so eco-hysteric these days. But uh, no, I mean, I wouldn't doubt that you're going to see suburbs practically abandoned in the U.S. because people aren't going to be able to afford to live in those damned houses, and they're not going to be able to afford to drive their cars to their jobs. There's going to be a huge readjustment in the way people live. So, uh, yeah, I uh, think if, if you're a, um, uh, looking for a place to live, I would either go to the center city or I would go to the country. But the suburbs, I think, are they're, uh, anachronisms. Ducks. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. The, the problem with the country, the, the deep countryside, is that's pretty dependent on oil as well. 
that, that's true. That's that's true. But normally, the people that live out in the country are either a bit more self-sufficient or they're rather wealthy and they can pay whatever it costs to live there. And this is not true of the suburbs. So I would uh, that, that's. But out of this, out of those three alternatives, uh, suburbs come in third. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Yeah, a bronze medal for the suburbs. Um, let's now let's uh, talk about China. We've obviously got this curve where the Chinese uh, living standard is improving, and uh, the uh, outlook for the UK and the American um, standard of living is rather gloomy. Um, let's say the living standard is chi- in China is one tenth of what it is in the US. What will that ratio be in say ten years' time? It's going to be much higher. Uh, if it's one tenth today, it'll be one fifth or one third uh, in ten or twenty years, uh, for a lot of reasons. For a lot of reasons. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a, I'm a long-term bull on China. Not that China is not going to have significant problems. Uh, I mean, they certainly could have uh, any kind of a political revolution. That's possible. But, uh, uh, you know, trends in motion are going to stay in motion. And and, and things like people call China, oh, it's a communist country. How can you be bullish about a communist country? No, the the Communist Party is is now what it's always been. It's just been a scam for the people that are in it to um, maintain power and to, uh, you know, rip off – uh, the uh, hoi polloi for, for for money, so there's no longer any ideology left in communism. It's it's just a it's just a scam to, for an iron rice bowl for the people that are in the party. Uh, but uh, when it comes to economic freedom, there's more economic freedom in China than there is in the U.S. As shocking as it is to say, uh, you can't you can't say things politically as you can in the U.S. But economically, there's actually more freedom. People don't seem to understand that. How is that? There's less regulation or less tax? Less re- yes, less regulation, less taxes. Uh, no question about it. And uh, the other thing is, is that the uh, average Chinese out there understands that the, that the government and uh, the party are really just a scam. So they don't feel an obligation to... Uh, uh, to uh, shovel taxes into their maw the way the average Western European or American does. And that means that the money that they do have is going to be much better um, spent because they're going to be spending it personally as opposed to giving it to politicians to spend. That and the fact that, uh, you know, Chinese culture, this whole experiment with Maoism and, and communism and so forth, it's a completely insignificant blip on the 5,000-year history of China. And the fact is is that the Chinese have a very big thing about becoming prosperous and becoming wealthy. And uh, it's uh, much much more of a big thing for them, especially now coming out of uh, abject poverty, than it is for uh, Europeans and Americans. So, no, their progress is going to continue. I'm I'm very bullish on China and India too, which is on the runway. <laughs> How long before you see a bright future for the for the U.S.? 
Well, you know, the problem with the U.S. is that uh, it's got this gigantic government which is regulating everything and taxing everything and uh, starting wars all over the world and so forth. I'm afraid I'm not going to be bullish on the U.S. until it gets smacked upside the back of the head really good and uh, learns at least a temporary lesson from it. So, uh, no, I'm afraid I I can't be a bull on the U.S. until things really look grim here. And uh, that's going to be a while. So uh, there's other places to go. I mean, what I try to do is I try to look at all of the 200 countries in the world, and I've been to 175 of them, most of, them, most of those countries numerous times, lived in 12. So I, I try not to be too ethnocentric, absolutely not jingoistic, and that's another problem with uh, America. Americans tend to think the whole world revolves around the U.S., and, and, and there's some truth to that, of course. It's the largest economy and so forth, but... Uh, I go wherever the opportunity is, not uh, just where I happen to be by an accident of birth or an accident of citizenship. And I recommend others do that, too. Yeah. Do you have kids? I don't. I've got horses and dogs. <laughs> I, don't know if that, I don't know if that makes up for lack of kids. It just, uh, I don't know, kids tie you down a bit. It's not so easy. But people say that, but they don't. You, you can, I suppose you can move about with kids. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Even if you don't have a lot of money, you can move around. It's just a question of how you orient your psychology and how you uh, how you manage the, your affairs with the assets that you have. So, and anyway, money isn't even the factor because, listen, I know rich people that are cemented to where they happen to have been born and grown up as as poor people. So I find it strictly a matter of psychology. And uh, uh, to me, my countrymen are people that I share values with. So I have more, more in common with friends of mine in the Congo than I do with people that live down the street here in Colorado in a trailer park. I mean, we have more in common psychologically, philosophically, economically, and we can do things together. And that's not true with the people down the street here in the trailer park because we've got nothing in common except we share a passport, which is meaningless. It's interesting because um, I think we're fairly cynical people over here in the UK and certainly more cynical than you are in the States. And I, I often wonder if that's a product of the fact that we're kind of an older, tireder, more jaded nation than you are. And I, I was in Australia uh, earlier this year and mm-hmm. everything that the state does in Australia, it's a very regulated country but the yeah. state is is fairly efficient and, it, and the things that the state do kind of work most of the time whereas everything the state does here kind of ends in disaster and corruption and everything else and I wonder and Australia is obviously a comparatively new country and there is still that belief and uh, in the state, and, and, and I suppose America's kind of somewhere in between the two. Well, I think partially it's a question of, you know, the longer any institution uh, exists, inevitably uh, the larger and the more concrete bound and the more corrupt it becomes. 
So uh, I think you can generalize that uh, an older country would tend to have more problems that way than a younger country like the U.S. or, or, or Australia. Is the U.K. a country that you know well? Reasonably well, and I think the U.K. is on the slippery slope. I really do. In fact, you know, I don't have to tell you this. Uh, London is the most expensive city in the world oh, by far. Tell me about it. And uh, to me... If I was a, a Brit at this point, living in anywhere in the UK, but absolutely in London, I would hit the bid with my property, and I'd get the hell out of Dodge. Uh, <laughs> look, uh, because whatever you've got, if you've got a, if you've got a, uh, let's say a, a nice townhouse in, in 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 London, for a, it's got a market value of two million pounds. I promise you. You can replace that with an identical building in Buenos Aires for maybe 15% of the price, and you'll have a much higher standard of living, living in a much more livable city, uh, and that's what you want to do. Because when I first went to Buenos Aires in 1980, it was the most expensive city in the world. It was as expensive then as London is now in, in those, you know, in, in the terms of $1980, and, and, and these things rotate around. So I would, uh, no, I definitely sell for, sell sell out of England and relocate to a place like BA. And England's got other problems too. This this war against Islam that America is engaged in uh, is likely to have much more serious consequences uh, for the Brits than it does for the Americans, because uh, you know there's a substantial uh, Islamic population. Uh, in, in Britain, and uh, I, I think they resent the fact that uh, the Crusaders are attacking their homelands. Uh, I don't know where that's going to end. Of course, you know what the demographics are in some countries in Europe, like Holland uh, and, and France and so forth, but uh, it's going to change the character of Western Europe in the future. Now, we can argue whether this is good, bad, or indifferent, but it's going to happen. And as it happens, it's likely to be tumultuous. And personally, I don't like to be involved in tumult. And it's not going to be good for the markets in uh, in Western Europe or Britain, for that matter. I, I just can't see how it can be good. Well, there's definitely something to what you say. Um, now, so, it's as I said, it's, it's July. Um, a lot of people are predicting, you know, a major correction because of what's happened in the Dow and the S&P over the last year has basically gone up uh, with a couple of exceptional days, February the 27th being one of them. Um, you know, so the higher it goes up, the more risk there is that it's going to come down. We put some of our money in gold. Where else do we put our money now? Well, I still like some of the commodities. And uh, I don't know what cotton is today. I haven't actually looked because I'm not... I'm not meaning to get long cotton for some time. That's been running away on me. But of all the commodities out there, I, I think that what's going to happen is there's more and more money that's going to pour into commodities. Cotton's one of my favorites. How, how do you invest in cotton? I mean, there are other, there are other junior cotton companies. No, I, I, this is on the futures exchange. So do you advise that in your, in your newsletters? You, you, you advise on futures? Not a lot. Uh, you know, all, all I do in the letter is try to draw people's attention to what markets seem to me to be cheap or dear. But 
you know, futures trading is something that, generally speaking, the average speculator gets hurt on because he over-leverages, he's not on top of the markets. Uh, but um, uh, if I, I, I can tell you that cotton is one of the cheapest commodities out there today, and uh, one of the reasons that I like it is it's a very water-intensive type of uh, type of plant. Now, water itself is going to become an increasingly valuable commodity in the world. So that there's a lot of cotton that's uh, going out of production, like in Central Asia and other places. So I, I think there's going to be a lot of upward pressure on cotton. Another thing I like is I like cattle. Uh, in historical terms, cattle are very cheap today, very, very cheap. And uh, there may not be much beef demand coming out of India, for obvious reasons, <laughs> There's going to be a lot coming out of uh, China as they become wealthier. And um, all over the world, uh, because of this uh, ethanol nonsense that the Americans are uh, involved in, I mean, this is one of the this is one of the most embarrassingly stupid things that, uh, that governments have crammed down the throats of the market is ethanol. It's totally uneconomic. But one thing it's done is it's doubled the price of corn. So everywhere that you can plant corn, which a lot of it's cattle land, uh, no, so cattle is going to be a, supp a supply-demand thing for cattle over the long run, too. And uh, I'm personally building a herd in Argentina, which is a double-edged sword because the, the government in Argentina is as stupid as governments are anywhere. I mean, they regulate things and kill the golden goose and so forth. But those are two commodities I like. A third is sugar. I think sh sugar in uh, historical terms, is also very, very cheap. So I would just draw people's attention to looking at those three markets with an eye uh, to going along. Mm. Natural gas looks cheap at the moment. Natural gas is cheap at the moment, and it's especially cheap uh, relative to oil. So uh, I would even be interested, as bullish as I am on oil, I might even be interested in going short oil versus long natural gas. That might be a good spread just at the moment. Or just go long natural gas because uh, it's, uh, I, I think it's quite cheap right now. So that's, that's, a, that's a fourth commodity. That's a very good point. And, of course, oil, too. Uh, I, hate to, I hate to say I'm bullish on oil uh, when it's $75, which it is, but uh, I think it's going higher. What about the kind of off-the-beaten-track metals, the cobalts, the mollies, that kind of thing? Uh, you know, molly sold for $2 forever. And uh, now it's selling for 32 34 I don't know what it is at the moment. Uh, yes, uh, molly has lots of uses uh, because it's, it's one of the 92 natural, naturally occurring elements and so it's unique in some ways, especially for the steel industry, making certain types of stainless steel and so forth. It's very hard. It has a very high melting point, many advantages. Yes, yes, yes. But we have to remember, Molly's gone up 15 times in price in the last five years. And most of the copper mines in the world uh, have Molly in them. And most of them haven't been taking the molly out because it's, it hasn't been economic to put in a molly circuit. But they're all doing this now. In addition to that, there's lots of molly deposits around the world that are being put into production. And in addition to that, if the economy turns down, generally worldwide, as I expect it is, uh, demand for molly is going to fall. So uh, 
I don't think Molly's going back to two dollars because because the general price level of everything in the world is going to double or triple with all the money creation going on. But I can't see how it's going to stay up here at thirty-four. So no, I have, I have zero interest in Molly and Cobalt. It's pretty much the same argument. In fact, with Cobalt, I would say that as as uh, the copper mines in Katanga. Uh, in the Congo, go back into production, and as goofy a place as the Congo is, that is going to happen. It is happening, and um, uh, those are a lot of those mines, and they're gigantic, and they're huge, and they're rich. They're very rich. Uh, they're actually at these prices, they're almost as much cobalt mines as they are copper mines. So you can easily see cobalt, uh, you know, uh, collapse to a, a half or a third of its present prices. So I, I don't really have any interest in that either. No, you know, the cat's already out of the bag in most of these industrial metals. I, I've got no interest in them. Let me ask you uh, about a couple of the other softs, um, coffee and cocoa. Do you have a view there? Oh, God, coffee. It seems to me the marginal cost of production of coffee around the world is, you know, the... the if the Vietnamese had not become a gigantic producer of coffee, which they had, <clears throat> coffee would probably be double uh, its, its present level today. I, I can't get a grip on coffee uh, at the moment. Probably, probably fairly priced uh, in the roughly dollar area. Cocoa can't get a grip on. I think it's probably on the cheap side. Cocoa, but once again, I don't have a grip on it. What, it, what uh, interests me about coffee is how long it takes to grow a coffee plant. So if you have a bad bit of weather and the crop gets wiped out, it takes several years before the coffee plants grow again, doesn't it? Yeah, and, I, and there are other things. I mean, everybody likes coffee. People like coffee for hundreds of years, and that's not going to go away. But I wonder, if, I wonder if all the consumption of coffee, what's going on with the, the Starbucks craze and all that, I wonder if that wouldn't taper off, and I wonder if consumption couldn't couldn't drop off. You know, I don't know. But like I said before, I, I try not to get involved in markets that I don't have a really strong feeling about. And coffee and cocoa are a couple that I can build bullish arguments, I can build bearish arguments. And when I can do that, I just stay away until it seems to me like something is so cheap or so dear, it's probably going to be a one-way street. And I, I just can't see it with those with those two. I, 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 for the tropicals, I, I think sugar is a more interesting proposition. Yeah. I mean, I, I happen to think coffee is an overrated drink, and I think people would drink less of it if Starbucks suddenly got more expensive. And indeed, I think coffee is kind of going out of fashion anyway. But there is the argument that the Chinese and the Indians would like to drink more coffee in order to imitate, imitate their Western you know, rivals as they get richer. But yeah, entirely, entirely possible. But you know, uh, I'll just have to wait and see if we have a if we have a collapse in price or a, a real spike way up there or something like that. Oh, maybe uh, maybe I'll do something, but not right now. Okay, well, Doug, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, and thanks for giving up so much of your of your time. As as we close, would you like to give out uh, your website so that uh, our listeners can uh, you know find out about your newsletter and so on and so forth? Yeah, we have uh, our website uh, with all these. We have a lot of publications, and some of them are free, so they can go to caseyresearch.com or dougcasey.com or 
uh, internationalspeculator.com. Any of the three of them take you all to the same place. And uh, sell us one of your newsletters. What does it What does it contain? One of the ones we have to pay for. Well, the International Speculator is our lead newsletter, and it does pretty much what it says. It uh, looks all over the world and all of the countries in the world that we can, and uh, we look for interesting speculations in any markets in any country, and that's why it's called the International Speculator. And then we have the Energy Speculator, which is uh, oil, natural gas, and uh, and uranium, and, and other types of hydrogeothermal uh, uh, you name it, anything that's energy-related is in that letter. And uh, so those are our two flagship publications. Excellent. Well, they sound they sound very interesting, and I have to say I'm very, uh, I'm simultaneously jealous and admiring of your lifestyle of going and living somewhere nice that's cheap and then moving on to the next place when, when the first place gets expensive. Well, you know, it really subsidizes your standard of living. I mean... I mean, uh, living in New Zealand about eh, four months of the year for the last seven or eight years, the appreciation in property prices, I mean, it's it's wonderful. So I'm selling out of there and buying into Argentina, where I hope to do the same thing. And the lifestyle has been wonderful in both places. Have you sold your American real estate? I'm, I'm uh, in process of moving everything out except for, you know, just a, just a little house for personal use. No investment real estate in the U.S. anymore for me. <laughs> is it as bad as people say out there at the moment, the real estate market? Well, no, I don't see it uh, yet. I mean, you read in the papers and, you, and it's clear that some people are being foreclosed on, but no, there's no wholesale panic. That's yet to come. But so it's going to come, I, you I, think? Yeah, I think, I think that... We just have cracks in the dam so far. So if anybody wants in the U.S. wants to sell their house, I suggest they hit the bid and not hold out for that last dollar because I don't think they're going to get it. And I'd say the same thing, and I'd say that's even more true of the U.K. real estate market. Well, we haven't. I think if the market has peaked, it's probably peaked in the in the uh, spring of this year. If it has peaked, it's definitely slowed down since the spring, but. Uh, you know, it may have another surge up. Who knows? But, you know, I, I remember, I, listen, I thought the U.K. real estate market had peaked two or three or four years ago. So so did I. I mean, there, there's no way of predicting how, how high a tree can grow, I guess. Yeah. But I wouldn't be a buyer right now. It doesn't make sense to me. Uh, from a fundamental point of view, it makes no sense whatsoever. No. <laughs> Doug, <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, my pleasure. Anytime. Commodity Watch Radio at Mindsight.com. I'm sitting in the offices of Greatland Gold in Paddington in London with Callum Baxter, the MD, and Greatland Gold have developed a cult following, if you like. They're one of the most requested companies uh, on this show. They explore for and um, develop natural resources with a focus on gold. Callum, um, welcome to the show. Why don't you give us a, a quick overview of Greatland, what you do and where you do it? Yeah, well, thank you, Dominic. Um, I'm quite enthused about the cult following that well, we've um, achieved. And, well, you um, do. You've got this kind of very loyal, passionate 
shareholder base, if, if what I read on the bulletin board is anything to go by. Oh, well, that's wonderful. I'm pleased that we've been able to attract a, a good following. And um, we were admitted to AIM in July last year and um, have been releasing drill results from our programs in Australia, more specifically Fire Tower in Tasmania, since the start of this year. And um, some good results have been released to market and um, the share price has performed on the back of it. Also, we've attracted um, some further investment and we were able to complete a placing during May this year. And um, as of today, in fact, um, we um, have completed a secondary placing for further funds. So, so how much have you raised? Um, during May, we raised £800,000 and uh, today we've raised a further £675,000. And so what, what's your total cash reserves that you've got in the bank then? Total cash reserves, um, once this last placing has been completed, will be approximately £1.8 million in cash. And uh, what's your market cap? The market cap is roughly £4 million based on the enlarged share capital after the secondary placing. Okay. And uh, why don't you, while we're on the technical things, give us some, some details on, on the company. Are there any uh, options and warrants outstanding? What was your year high and your year low? Who are your major shareholders? Yes, um, our uh, year high was roughly 3.8p and our year low was roughly 1.5p. Um, at the moment, we're trading roughly around 2.5. Options, um, we have 6 million, um, which are exercisable at 3p. Um, before the 30th of June 2012 and we have no warrants. And who are your major shareholders? Major shareholders are Starvest with um, roughly 10%. Um, they are AIM listed. Um, we have um, Sunvest Investment Corporation who are listed on the Australian Stock Exchange with roughly 8% and um, the remaining large shareholders are myself and co-director Paul Askins with roughly 6.5% each. Okay. So, give us a, tell us about, you've got one project in Tasmania, another in Western Australia, is that right? Yes, that's right. Two in Tasmania and one in Western Australia, so a total of three projects. Um, in total, they cover 450 square kilometres. Um, our lead project, and the one that's received the most attention to date, is Fire Tower, mm -hmm. which is located in uh, central north Tasmania. And... Um, that's received the bulk of attention to date where we've been drilling holes and carrying out surface sampling and uh, we have a small resource of 90,000 ounces which is Jork inferred. And uh, what, are the, what are the plans with that? Are you going to kind of drill it out and set it on or are you going to try and turn it into a mine or...? Well all those options are available to us. We own the asset 100% and um, we are drilling it to make it larger at this point in time because 90,000 ounces is a nice start, but um, it's much better with higher numbers mm -hmm. uh, or a larger resource. So um, we're putting some efforts into drilling to increase the resource size and um, then we'll look at our options as to whether um, we mine it ourselves or whether we sell it to some other party or whether we enter into a toll mining arrangement with a nearby facility. And is, that, is Tasmania a, a mining-friendly state, or does it not matter which state you're in in Australia? Well, in general, Australia is very mining-friendly, and its economy is 
propped up by the the, um, the revenues from the sale of metals, etc. Um, and Tasmania specifically is metals friendly and mining friendly. Um, it has a long history of mining. Uh, some of the largest base metal deposits of world class scale are in Tasmania and also there are large gold deposits such as the um, plus million ounce Beaconsfield gold mine which is 20 miles away in a straight line from Fire Tower and also the Henty gold mine which is plus million ounces which is roughly um, 100 miles away from where we are. So um, yeah, there's a, a good mining history and a good lump of resources sitting in Tasmania. Mm-hmm. What are you? What are the plans? How are you going to spend your 1.8 million? Well, we're not going to deviate from the plan that we set out with uh, on admission. Um, we have our projects and um, we're advancing them in a cost-effective manner. Um, we're getting more recognition from the market because we're carrying out what we said we were setting out to do. And um, the information that we've been releasing to market has been favourable and the market has responded. So um, we, we just continue doing what we do best in exploring and um, mm-hmm. building our resource base. What, what's your background? I mean, you look to... You, most people you meet in the, in the mining game are all kind of 55, 60 plus and you, I guess, late 30s, early 40s, something like that. That's right, yes, late 30s. Um, I have been, I'm trained as an exploration geologist and have spent 15 years in the industry um, kicking dirt and licking rocks out in the bush in various parts of the world and um, have been part of teams that have found some large resources in the past, um, plus five million ounce gold deposit in Australia, along with my co-director Paul Askins, he's a geologist with 35 years experience and he's played a part in multi-million ounce gold discoveries as well. And um, we've both been involved in junior companies in the past and have seen where serious success moves a, a relatively small market cap company into something much larger. And essentially, Greatland Gold has been recreated to um, benefit from that increase in market cap mm-hmm. based on raw discoveries with um, exploration efforts. Now, I'm right in saying that Andrew Bell, who's also been on the show, is one of your co-directors, is that right? And Andrew's not the, the greatest fan of the AIM market, and I have to say, nor are many of my listeners. Is a dual listing in Australia something that you're considering further down the road? Yes, Andrew Bell is chairman of, on the board of Greatland Gold, and um, he's also on the board of a number of other AIM-listed resource companies. Um, there, there, there has been some comment that AIM is potentially not a favourable market. However, I don't agree with that. Um, it's a very dynamic market and very fluid market and um, essentially for a company in our position where we're essentially cash burn exploration, mm-hmm. yeah. um, you're always in need of funds and um, AIM is wonderful because it's very easy to raise capital if mm. it's available and when you want to do it. Um, plus, uh, there is a lighter regulatory touch, but um, still, there's enough control to make the investor feel comfortable that the company's operating in the right manner. And now, a dual listing is always in the back of our minds because we are um, an Australian-focused company, and myself and Paul Askins have an Australian background, even though I now live in the UK. Um, but we feel that um, keeping our eggs in the aim basket is something that um, is more attractive to us rather than 
exposing ourselves to, say, an ASX listing as well, which would essentially mean that um, we would have to deal with two different regulatory regimes. We've got extra administrative burden. Um, and for the money that we could raise in Australia... Um, in terms of a dual listing for Greatland, we could turn around and raise that kind of money in London um, with our existing AIM listed company anyway. So um, it's really no benefit for us to do a dual listing. So your fire tower has a resource of something like 90,000 ounces. What about the other two? The second project of Warrantina is also in Tasmania and it's located uh, in the northeast of the state. It um, covers three historic gold fields and um, over approximately 30 kilometres of strike length. And um, the, the historic gold fields are essentially an accumulation of shallow workings mm-hmm. that were um, dug by the old timers roughly 100 years ago where they found high-grade indications of mineralisation at surface Um, They mined it down to the water table, approximately 30 feet, and once they hit the water table, they weren't able to go any deeper. And and then they processed the the ore that they they dug out by hand and extracted the gold. So back in those times, it was really only economic to extract gold from ore that was above roughly 30 grams per tonne, which is an ounce per tonne. So, you know, they were chasing high-grade ore at hundreds of grams per tonne. Uh, essentially what we've got is an accumulation of these things in three gold fields and um, we've been going in and having a look um, at um, what the strike length is and what mineralisation we can um, see in the ground. Um, we haven't done too much work at Warrantina so far because most of our focus has been up to date on fire tower. But um, we completed two sampling programs since May this year at Warrantina and uh, roughly a month ago we received our first round of samples back from surface sampling at Warrantina on some of these old workings and um, some of the results were, uh, quite, um, were quite outstanding, over 100 grams per tonne. So we were quite enthusiastic about what we'd achieved. However, sometimes uh, these things can't be replicated so uh, what we did is we went back out into the field and completed a, mm-hmm. a more uh, substantial sampling program and um, those results came back recently and uh, they were even higher again up to 460 grams per tonne uh, just in rough figures uh, which is really outstanding so um, we're compelled to have a closer look at that um, in the coming weeks and months. Excellent and in Western Australia? The Western Australian project um, we haven't paid much attention to um, as the tenement isn't granted as yet but it is located in the southern Archean terrain, which is host to many gold and nickel sulphide deposits. Um, and uh, we have uh, an operating nickel mine not far away, and essentially um, we have a piece of greenstone, which is the rock that hosts these gold and nickel deposits, mm-hmm. that no one's ever explored before. But we know that along strike to the north and south, um, RGC and Billiton have um, picked up gold, Uh, So we're quite enthusiastic about getting out there and having a look around, which we'll do later on this year. So in in Australia, it's not like Alaska. You can mine or explore all year round, can't you? Well, Australia's a big place and you get lots of climatic variation from north to south. Um, But in general, you can explore most of the year round. Uh, The the biggest problem is um, summertime if you're in the middle of the desert. 
where mm-hmm. the temperatures can be rather extreme and you've got problems with um, uh, people's health and uh, machinery not being able to cope with the heat. So in general you try and avoid high summer if you're in the middle of the desert but in our case we're in Tasmania primarily uh, so we're in a fairly temperate climate and um, there's no barriers to operating 12 months of the year. So how many guys have you got out there on, working for you at any given moment out there in, in the field? Yeah, we have a crew of roughly six to eight. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the, the numbers vary depending on what activities we're carrying out at any point in time. But um, we do have an operational base in Tasmania, which is essentially office facilities and um, accommodation facilities for the guys. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, then people come and go as required and... Um, we also have drill crews which are employed mm. on a contract basis and um, yeah, it's, it's a small crew but it's focused and um, we're small but we're smart and it keeps our cash burn under control. Do they, do they wear those hats with the corks hanging off them? Uh, no, no, <laughs> they don't. Um, listen Callum, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of gold exploration companies out there and I mean I think you're a great guy meeting you and it's, it's obvious that you're honest and determined and everything else but why if I'm to, to buy shares in a gold exploration company why should I choose Greatland ahead of one of the many others? Well <laughs> so many times I've asked this question I just want to try and reword it a different way so it doesn't sound like I'm <laughs> just reading it off the script or something Greatland has a small market cap and um, it's a relatively cheap entry price with a lot of upside. Um, the shares are reasonably priced in the market at the moment and on the back of an increase of resources or a major discovery, um, Greatland Gold isn't just going to double in price, it's going to be multiples of its existing price. So we are in the game of mineral exploration which is high risk, however the investor should expect a high return on for taking that risk. Um, Greatland also has a board of directors that have been involved in the industry for many years, both on a technical level and also at a corporate level and um, dealing with um, talking to the city and um, promoting the company. So um, we think that we've got all our bases covered and we can effectively do um, a good job with limited resources Um, but give a good return to the investor. Excellent. Well, Callum Baxter, thank you very much. Thank you, Dominic. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby. Nova Gold are one of the fastest growing gold copper producers in North America and their president and CEO is Rick Van Leeuwenhazer. Rick, according to Michael Hampton, is one of the top exploration guys, not just in North America, but on the planet. And it's my pleasure to be interviewing him now. Rick, welcome to the show. Um, why, don't you give us, why don't you start by giving us a quick overview of Nova Gold? It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Nova Gold is focused in North America. We have a uh, reserve and resource base of about 34 million ounces of gold and about 8 billion pounds of copper. We're currently developing uh, two mines that are mm-hmm. under construction. Our first mine, uh, the Rock Creek Mine, uh, is, in the, is located in Nome, Alaska, and it will be in production by the end of the year. We start commissioning the mill in September. 
Our second mine is a, a huge uh, Galore Creek project in partnership with uh, Tech Cominco. Uh, we're building that project uh, right now under construction. We've got about 600 people on the ground uh, building the mine, and we expect to uh, start pouring uh, gold and uh, producing copper in 2012. Did, does the gold and the copper come at the same time, or does one come first? Now, actually, uh, we're producing a concentrate. Uh, it'll average about 28 to 30 percent copper and contain uh, significant amounts of gold and silver. And both these projects are in Alaska? Uh, actually, uh, Galore Creek is in uh, northern British Columbia, uh, just across the border from Alaska, and uh, the Rock Creek project uh, is also located in Alaska. Excellent. And um, so how long has the company been in existence for? Well, it took over the company, or uh, what they call a shell company, in uh, 1997, 1998, at the end of the year there, and uh, so we've been around about eight years. And what were you doing? And, and so you, you kind of got in right at the bottom of this bull market, didn't you? It was uh, at the end of the last, uh, last uh, run-up in gold. Uh, back in 98, uh, in uh, the gold price was still about $450, but uh, it seemed to plummet uh, to sub-$300 levels very quickly. And uh, it was a difficult time to start up a company, but at the same time there were, uh, there were very good opportunities around to... Uh, uh, to, uh, to acquire, like to say, uh, buy low, know, sell high. Yeah. Did you know these assets before you started? I mean, was it? did you have these assets, in, these properties in mind when you started the company? Actually, uh, yeah, the, um, uh, the Rock Creek project uh, located in Nome, I, I knew that project uh, quite, for quite a long time. Uh, Galore Creek I was familiar with, but not, uh, not intimately familiar with. Uh, our other big project in Alaska is called the Donald Creek Project. It's a 30 million ounce gold deposit. It's a joint venture with Barrett Gold. Mm -hmm. Um, that one we were also very, very familiar with, uh, having uh, discovered that project in the mid-90s when I was the uh, uh, vice president of exploration uh, for Placer Dome. I see. And um, what's the market cap of Nova Gold? Nova Gold has a market cap today of about $1.7 billion uh, U.S. dollars. Uh, we're traded on uh, both the American Stock Exchange and the Toronto Stock Exchange, uh, as simple as NG. And uh, what's your year high and year low? Uh, the year high is uh, uh, about $17, and the year low is about uh, $14. That's for 2007, or just the last 52 weeks? Yeah, it'd be about 52 weeks. Okay. Yeah, that's about right. And um, are there lots of warrants and options outstanding? There's two sets of warrants. Uh, they are traded. Um, the one set's at, uh, at $7 and one set's at 12 uh, They're both, uh, they're both uh, trading in the market, and... Uh, uh, the first set comes due in January of 08, the second set in, uh, in October. Total of about 3 million, uh, 3 million uh, warrants. And who are your major shareholders? Our major shareholders uh, tend to be uh, uh, US, uh, U.S. general funds, generalist funds, uh, growth at a reasonable price uh, investors, uh, some, uh, a number of uh, wealthy individual investors, uh, not a lot of uh, European investors at this point, which is uh, obviously uh, one of the purposes of my trip here in London is uh, to uh, get the story out mm -hmm. and uh, see if we can find some new investors uh, to, uh, to follow us through the next level here. Excellent. And I have to say, your, your chart looks pretty good at the moment. There was a, it, did it, it gapped down a, a, few, a couple of months ago. What, what happened there? Well, we were uh, the subject of a takeover uh, bid by Barrick Gold last year. Uh, from July through December, uh, Barrick mounted a uh, uh, what was portrayed as a fairly hostile takeover uh, attempt. Uh, after five months in December, they finally gave up. Uh, they did take down about 14% uh, of the stock. 
which they then sold in April and uh, very unceremoniously just uh, dumped it on the market. And so that's the, the gap that you were referring to when the share price went from 17 I don't understand why people now. do that. You'd think, I mean, it, it's, it's, um, you'd think they'd release it gradually and try and um, get as much money as possible for their share. Well, they, they, you know, they got a fair price for it. They, uh, they got uh, a little bit more than they bought it for, and uh, they, ha- it, they, uh, they dropped the stock at the same time we did our last financing, which was in April, and it was a convenient time for them. Quite an inconvenient time for us, but yeah. uh, it was a convenient time for them to uh, to unload the stock. But that's all behind us. It's old news. Uh, we, mm-hmm. we move forward. And did uh, you want to be taken over by them, or were you? No, uh, that's why it was uh, fairly hostile. We had yeah. uh, we've been uh, had the intention of uh, building a mining company here. We've got great assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've built a, a great team over the years. Uh, uh, my background is exploration. Uh, uh, a number of the other the, the, the fellows that uh, I started the company with are all we're all exploration geologists, uh, but we've added to the team uh, with uh, uh, Peter Harris, our chief operating officer, has uh, 30 years with Placer Dome. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was responsible for uh, all the feasibility studies of the construction teams there, and uh, and operated a number of mines. So he's brought that uh, uh, engineering operations construction experience, and uh, we built our Galore Creek team and our uh, Rock Creek team. Uh, uh, by just outsourcing uh, people, uh, mm-hmm. you know, reaching out and, and grabbing, grabbing all the people that Peter knows in the industry. Um, meanwhile, we've built, really built up our old finance team as well. So uh, we've got a very well, well-rounded company with a strong management, I and see. I think we've demonstrated our tenacity uh, uh, in, the, in the takeover battle with Barrick. You certainly have. Now, the, you mentioned the financing in uh, March or April this year. How, how much cash do you have now? Uh, we raised uh, a little over $200 million at that time, and uh, we'll, uh, by the end of uh, the month here, we'll probably have in the range of about $150 million. Uh, and uh, Tech, the agreement with, that we just signed with Tech Gold, or excuse me, Tech uh, Cominco on the Galorcree project will have them spending the next $478 million. So we don't have any uh, real cash outflow on that project uh, for about two years. And uh, so the, the $150 million cash that we have roughly will, uh, will remain on our balance sheet here. Uh, I see. We should be cash flow positive at our Rock Creek operation uh, Q1 of 08 and generating between 25 and uh, $30 million of gold at today's, uh, or $30 million cash flow at today's uh, gold prices. I see. And that's, that's per year? That's per year, that's correct. So have you got enough to get your other mines to see them into production or... We don't going to do a need to do another financing. We don't see the need to do a financing uh, uh, for the next uh, year or so. We're, we're well uh, well equipped uh, on our uh, for the financing on our Galore Creek project. Uh, we'll be looking at uh, taking on uh, some debt financing to complete that project. With our partnership with uh, with Tech, we think the, the we've got a very good uh, opportunity to continue the. Uh, uh, to construct that project with uh, using their money, and then of course uh, a debt finance a debt financing structure that we likely would get in place two years from now. And how much of your profit do you have to give to uh, to tech? Uh, it's or a fifty share. It's 50/50. a fifty fifty. Right. Yeah, and uh, uh, you know we're, we've built up the uh, the construction team. Uh, tech is uh, is putting some key people in in, in place now. Uh, we've pretty much have the uh, the management team set up uh, on the, what's called the Galore Creek uh, Mining Company. Mm-hmm. So, tell us um, about the mine lives or the projected mine lives of these various projects. 
Uh, Rock Creek in, in Alaska will produce about 100,000 ounces of gold. Uh, cash costs will be 275 to $300 an ounce, which is in the second quartile. Mm -hmm. Average cash cost worldwide now is uh, about uh, 350 to $380 an ounce. Uh, so we'll be well below that. Uh, currently, current mine life is about uh, six, seven years, but we've got lots of other resources, uh, about two million additional uh, resource ounces in the uh, Nome area that will continue to, uh, to drill and, and move into the proven probable category. I see. So you'll be, as well as generating cash, you'll be releasing little bits of exploration news to kind of keep people, investors, happy and interested. Yeah, the, the Nome District's produced about 5 million ounces of, uh, of near-surface alluvial gold, and Rock Creek represents really the first uh, modern open pit hard rock mine in the district, so we, we see lots of future potential there. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, over at uh, on the Galore Creek project, uh, we have about 540 million tons of ore, uh, that mine will produce about 400 million pounds of copper a year, about 340,000 ounces of gold, and about 4 million ounces of silver, also pretty significant silver producer. So uh, this is a very large mine. Uh, current mine life is 22 years. Uh, there's an additional billion tons of uh, resource immediately adjacent to the, the current reserve. Uh, we'll be looking uh, over the next few years at uh, an expansion uh, scenario probably in year three to five uh, of the mine life. So early on in the mine life, we look at, would look at doubling the throughput up to uh, 130 to 140,000 tons per day and, and uh, keep that high level of production uh, up for the next 20, 30 years. I see. Now you're, I mean, it's obvious you've got quite a lot on your plate already with these various projects, but are you looking to stake some new territory and explore elsewhere or maybe take over some smaller juniors or you're just focusing on what you're doing at the moment? Uh, we do have a lot on our plate, uh, but uh, we are continuing our, uh, our exploration uh, activities, uh, both in Alaska and British Columbia. We're starting to uh, move uh, south and looking at some opportunities in, uh, in Mexico and uh, even, even further south. Uh, we do like North America. We see there's good opportunities there. Uh, we are also uh, starting to look at uh, acquisition opportunities. Uh, mm -hmm. Clearly, we've got uh, a, good, a great production profile. Uh, in four or five years, uh, we were looking at uh, perhaps advancing uh, uh, our entry into that mid-tier space uh, and uh, with an acquisition of uh, a producing asset and or a, an acquisition of uh, a development stage asset. I see. Now, let me just uh, broaden the conversation out a little bit and ask you, I mean, you, you, you've got the, the copper, the gold, uh, there's some silver there. Which metal are you most bullish on? That's a tough question. Uh, I think all three of those were, were, uh, were quite keen on, uh, on gold. Uh, it's a little bit different metal than, uh, than uh, most of the rest of the metals in that it's, uh, it's also a currency. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, as a currency, it, uh, it is subject to uh, uh, sort of government management. Call yeah. it, uh, some people call it manipulation. I just call it uh, you know, management like, a, like you manage any of, the, any of the other currencies. They buy and sell yen. They buy and sell gold, mm -hmm. central banks, and... Uh, that's uh, that's uh, makes it a little less uh, easy to sort of predict. Mm -hmm. But I think with what we see macro going on in the world from a macroeconomic view, dollar weakening, uh, higher oil prices, uh, all the commodities are, are really uh, have moved much further uh, ahead than gold has. Yeah. Uh, I think gold has been uh, a bit slow to move. I think because it's being managed. Uh, yeah. And uh, so I think uh, I'm quite bullish on gold for that reason. Uh, you've seen. For example, you've seen copper move from $0.65 cents to $3.50. Uh, 
um, you know, that's a pretty significant uh, you know, five-fold increase. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't seen gold increase five-fold. No. Uh, I expect we probably will. Now, you... I mean, you, if you've been in this game as long as you have, you must have seen dramatically rising costs. Um, it, how is that affecting you? We really have seen uh, uh, significant uh, inflation in, in, in the mining sector. I know the, the, the official government reports, uh, because they only look at sort of what they call core inflation, uh, mm-hmm. things that don't inflate very much, they, they measure that. Uh, but uh, we've seen in the mining business uh, uh, significant inflation in, in our uh, in what it costs to build a mine, mm-hmm. uh, the cost of cement is more, the cost of steel is more, so the cost of trucks and excavators and uh, uh, ball mills are, are all hugely increased. Uh, I would guess in the last uh, three to five years the costs have gone up uh, to build a mine by about 50%. And, uh, and how do you fight that? Well, you have to, you have to uh, be more efficient, you have to find uh, uh, good quality projects. Uh, uh, I think it's a, it's a good lesson in uh, you know saying that the same old dogs uh, uh, that didn't fly uh, in the last bull market uh, aren't going to fly in this bull market uh, mm-hmm. just because uh, the price is high. Yeah. The, you know, it, it, it takes more than just a high price. It still has to be a quality project, uh-huh. and uh, so um, you know, pigs don't fly, and uh, pigs just don't fly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got a couple of dogs that I wish would fly, but they show no signs of doing it. The gold price goes up and they go down. Anyway, uh, I won't dwell on that. The, um, now, just tell us quickly about the uh, infrastructure around your mines. Have you had, you've had to build a road at one of them. Yeah, the Glory project is uh, it's a very large, high-quality project. It is located in a fairly uh, remote part of northern British Columbia. We're about 130 kilometers off the main highway. And mm-hmm. so we're building 130 kilometers of road along with a, uh, a short access tunnel uh, into the valley. Uh, into, the, into the Glore Valley. Uh, but it is a, it's a monstrous uh, uh, size deposit uh, uh, with a you know, production uh, level of over 400 million pounds of copper and uh, 340,000 ounces of gold. That's a very large mine, 22 year mine life, lots of exploration upside, mm-hmm. a billion tons of resource. We'll, uh, we'll optimize uh, that with a, a, a phase two uh, feasibility study that will start here uh, uh, probably towards the end of the year. So um, it is a, it's, it's a challenging project from a, from a location standpoint. The road is uh, uh, it's a long road, uh, mm-hmm. no question about it. Just, we'll spend about $600 million putting the infrastructure in place uh, to make the mine accessible to the outside world. So we can we'll have a road in. Can you get any help from the government with that? Nope. Uh, uh, my my philosophy is uh, don't don't uh, don't get the don't let the government help you. <laughs> Probably very wise. Uh, let's just clarify: you're going to spend six hundred million dollars. What do you get for that? Uh, the six hundred million dollars really is is to provide all the infrastructure to uh, to put the galore connect galore with the outside world, if you will. Uh, builds the road, uh, the tunnel. It brings power into the to the project, uh, and we're also with, uh, going to uh, put a pipeline actually two pipelines, uh, a concentrate pipeline to bring the concentrate from the mine site out to the road where we'll dewater it and, uh, and then load it onto trucks uh, for shipment down to the Port of Stewart, mm-hmm. uh, and also a diesel pipeline into the project so we're bringing all of our fuel in uh, by, uh, uh, with the pipeline. And that just avoids uh, a lot of traffic on the road, uh, both for hauling concentrate and hauling fuel. Now, um, Rick... There are lots of other junior gold producers. There's lots of late-stage development guys out there. Why should we choose Nova Gold? 
Well, I think Novagold uh, is, uh, so first of all, you're, you're getting uh, exposure to probably the largest resource base of uh, any other company our size um, in terms of market cap. Uh, you, I don't think you'll find another market cap company with 34 million ounces of gold and 8 billion pounds of copper. Um, we are at that uh, transition stage from a, an, an exploration valuation to a producer valuation. Mm -hmm. Uh, the mid-tier gold producers get the best value. Uh, our ounces are high-quality ounces because they're going to be very low cost uh, as a result of the copper credit uh, and, the, and the silver credit. Uh, they're located in North America, so they're in a uh, very uh, uh, good geo geopolitical environment. Mm -hmm. uh, that also tends to attract the highest premium. And uh, we also control the uh, expiration rights to a, a huge area around these uh, specific mines. Uh, which will give you growth. Uh, mm. The old adage in the, in the mining business is the best place to find gold is next to the head frame. Uh, so your, your best chances are finding more gold is right around the, the mine. Mm. So with that in mind, we expect to continue to explore these projects over the next uh, 10, 20 years and continue to find more gold, more copper, and more silver. Well, I wish you all the very best with it. And uh, as we close, Rick, why don't you give out the uh, website address uh, for the company and your ticker symbol as well one more time. Our website is uh, novagold.net uh, and also novagold.com, both work. And our ticker symbol is uh, NG, uh, traded on both the American Stock Exchange and the Toronto Stock Exchange. Rick Van Nieuwenhazer, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, that was good. Commodity Watch Radio at mindsite.com. Okay, I'm talking now to Michael Hampton. Hello, Michael. Hi, Dominic. And also on the line with us is Tim Newding. Now, Tim has run uh, investment banking and asset management businesses in the UK and Japan, and he's now the chief executive of Prosperity Capital Services, who raise money for London-based hedge funds um, from Japanese institutions. Tim, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you very much, Dominic. I'm just fine, thanks. Excellent. Michael, why don't we kick off with you now? Um, well, what would you like to talk about today? Well, um, I think we're in a very interesting period. Um, the summers are usually very quiet. Not too much happens. This year could be different. And uh, the big change or the big important uh, move that we might see is a breakdown in the U.S. dollar, which seems to be underway. Right now, we're down about DX. 80, which is a key support level. We're testing that. And if we break through that and then further go down and test and break through 78, we're, we're, we're going to be seeing a very important breakdown in the U.S. dollar. But basically, it has to do with money supply, and I think we'll get into this a bit, but the U.S. has been pumping up its money supply. Uh, it stopped reporting M3. The money's been going out from the U.S., and the foreign trading partners like China and so forth have been printing their own money in order to absorb from their citizens the excess dollars. And um, that's really led to uh, a global boom in asset markets around the world. Uh, the unfortunate aspect of that is it's put, um, it's, it's put a lot of mar markets into uh, places where excesses are showing up. And those excesses are beginning to pop through and uh, showing us a lot of potential danger signs in the market. So. With all that, I think we're going to see uh, we're going to see a summer uh, which isn't going to be boring. I think we're going to see some very interesting moves 
importantly, in the U.S. dollar. Um, and that's going to have some knock-on effects eventually in other markets. And frankly, I think it's possible that all hell may break loose. Tim and I were talking just before this broadcast about how we may actually be seeing some interesting similarities between this year and 1987. Tim, you were around in 1987, weren't you? Yes, uh, for my sins, I, I was uh, in the middle of a trading room in 1987 during the uh, crash uh, in October of that year. Um, there are a lot of similarities between 87 and 2007. Um, just to list them, um, so far, at least in this year, a huge amount of liquidity in the markets, um, shrinkage in the equity volume outstanding, uh, the breadth of the market gains is beginning to deteriorate. Um, a move from leadership from small and medium uh, capitalization stocks to large cap, um, an acceleration in inflation, even though we don't see it yet, and increasing interest rates. Um, the perhaps more interesting things are where are the, the, the what are the areas that are different from 1987, and those may be the things that we may see in the next three. Uh, to six months. Um, one is valuations. Valuations are not as high as they were in 87. They were more like 20 times uh, PEs in the U.S. equity market than and versus the 16 or so, um, 16 or 17 at the moment. In 1987, the S&P 500, representing large cap stocks, uh, became much more expensive in terms of PE than small and mid cap stocks. Uh, we haven't really seen that yet. Uh, in 2007, and this may be something that uh, develops over the next two to three months. In 1987, um, the public, so retail, uh, was participating heavily, and that has not really occurred yet, so perhaps this is another uh, feature we're going to look for in the next three uh, months or so. But I think there is a uh, build-up to some period in the fall, perhaps, where um, the market will uh, come to a crisis point. Um, so really, uh, you know, what, what do we take away from this? Well, um, I think the, the point is where, where uh, the, the, the next trends are. And uh, Michael's point about uh, foreign exchange, the weakness of the dollar, I think, is very uh, key. Um, uh, not so much in and of itself, but because it could trigger higher inflation. So as the weaker dollar creates more expensive imports, um, inflation could rise, which would trigger increases, further increases in interest rates. Are you long gold? I am long gold. It's a fairly a sizable um, allocation in my global portfolio. Okay, well, the, let, let's, let's discuss the interest rates because I keep hearing that they have to go up, but that the governments are going to want to bring them down. What's your view, Michael? Well, I mean, uh, in a way, we could get uh, both happening before the year's over. Um, one of the factors that will push rates higher um, is a weak dollar, because um, if the dollar gets weak, then to attract uh, interest back into the dollar, the, uh, the Federal Reserve may have to push up interest rates. And if they don't do it um, on the short-term interest rates, then the market might do it on the long-term rates. And I mean, we've already seen a very dramatic rise uh, in, in, in uh, rates um, by 60 or 70 basis points in a matter of a few days. Uh, we've seen now a drop in rates in the last few days. Uh, and that's really been driven by an interesting phenomenon, which is a flight to quality. Uh, investors have been selling their uh, 
their uh, CDO, uh, you know, and corporate bonds and buying U.S. Treasuries. And that's actually pushed rates back down, you know, slightly below 5%. Um, but at some stage, I think we might see those rates go a lot higher, maybe up to 5.5% or higher. That would hurt the equity markets. That, that's right. Um, uh, it's uh, Tim again. And uh, I think uh, also the... the um, one of the reasons that uh, interest rates may go up is related also to the dollar, which is, as we all know, there are very large uh, institutional and governmental investors in U.S. dollar securities, particularly debt securities. And as they begin to lose money on their foreign exchange risk, assuming that they've left it uncovered, um, they'll be reallocating less and less uh, to, to, to the U.S. sector. We've seen that already, uh, more allocations to euro uh, more allocations to yen and uh, other regional securities. Um, and that is one of the issues, I think, long-term that will push interest rates higher. Um, I do think the 5.5% uh, level in the 10-year U.S. Treasury is a critical level. And potentially, even if it touches uh, that, that level of yield, um, there could be uh, large amounts of selling and shorting, uh, bringing the equity market uh, down. Now, Tim, you're an American uh, living in London, dealing with Japan. Um, tell us your outlook uh, on the pound and the yen in all this. Well, um, we've obviously seen uh, record highs in the pound. Um, uh, in the yen, it's a very different story. Um, we're seeing you know, a very weak yen, and I think that trend will continue, so that the dollar being very weak versus European currencies but still maintaining some strength to the yen. In the case of the yen, you probably will be seeing a spike up in yen strength, uh, i.e. dollar falling at some point. And it may be just what surrounds this uh, crisis point that we've been talking about. However, strangely enough, uh, I don't believe the strong yen is sustainable. Um, the economy is not quite as strong as everyone uh, expects uh, it will be. Uh, in my view, um, and therefore the spike up would be a good opportunity to short the yen. When's the uh, next um, Japanese decision on interest rates coming? Um, well, w we, don't, we don't know when the next increase will be, um, but I think the betting currently is on uh, either August or September. Because um, I noticed in February of this year and in May um, last year, the two big corrections were preceded uh, by a rise in interest, Japanese interest rates by, I think it was a quarter of a percent. And, um, you know, both times, a week later, we saw a dramatic correction in the stock markets. Yes, ex exactly. Because uh, as, as probably many participants know, um, the yen carry trade, i.e. Uh, borrowing yen uh, at a very low interest rate and then reinvesting that in higher uh, interest rate currencies or other securities in, uh, around the world with higher expected returns, um, is one of the uh, engines feeding the market uh, recently for the last year or two. Um, so that's the, that's the connection between um, a dis decision uh, on raising yen interest rates and a global market reaction. So, Tim, where are you putting your money at the moment? Well, I've, I've, got, I've got a very uh, diversified portfolio. Um, I have uh, about I have probably too much cash, but uh, about 25% in cash. Um, I've got a lot of gold. I've got other diversified commodities, including oil. 
Um, I've got a heavily, uh, because I'm a U.S.-based investor, so U.S. dollar-based investor, I have a heavy amount of uh, uh, equity um, exposure outside the U.S., so YMEA, so developed uh, uh, world outside uh, the U.S., as well as emerging markets. Very interesting. And Michael, you're kind of almost fully invested in the gold sector, aren't you? Well, I am. I mean, I put my money where my mouth is. We've been talking about um, the slingshot effect, and just to remind people um, what we what that means is normally there's a low in gold and gold shares in late August, and I've been saying for some weeks that we're going to see that low early. Um, looks like we've seen it now at the end of June, and uh, since then we've seen a pretty interesting jump in uh, gold prices. Uh, over 4% and an interesting jump in gold shares, about 14%. Um, so, you know, we've had a nice move up already from those lows, but uh, it looks like uh, gold shares, uh, and then gold too would follow, I think, but it looks like gold shares are about to break out uh, in an important way. And if we see that, we could see uh, another 5 or 10% or more uh, on gold shares uh, in coming weeks and months. And I don't think we're necessarily going to wait, as we usually do, until September to see those moves. It looks to me that we might be seeing them right here in the middle of the summer as, uh, as this dollar weakness continues. Um, so that's definitely something for people to keep an eye on. Now, Michael, um, you're kind of well known on the Internet bulletin boards as a, uh, uh, a property bear and uh, you sold your flat in London in, I think it was 2001, and you bought gold shares. Um, and people have said, well, the market's carried on going up. But your point is that the gold shares have gone up by a lot more. Um, do you want to discuss your gold shares versus builders um, thread that you're starting? Sure. Um, I'll put this on Global Edge Investors, and there will be a, a link there uh, mentioning CW Radio, Commodity Watch Radio. Um, but uh, there'll be a chart on there, which I'm looking at now, which uh, basically looks at uh, three different uh, prices since late 2001. Uh, we see the gold shares represented by the GDX, the, uh, the ETF for gold shares, and that's up since then 500%. Um, and then we see as well two, two important builder shares. We see Persimmon, Persimmon that is, uh, and we see Barrett. And uh, one of those is up 250% or 260%, about half half as much as, as, as gold shares. And uh, the other one is up about 180%, I guess. Um, so a significantly less than the move in, uh, in gold shares. Unfortunately, I've actually been able to outperform quite substantially in my own portfolio the 500% increase in gold shares, um, especially in the last couple of years uh, when the gold, gold market in the last year or so, the gold shares haven't done very much, and, uh, you know, w with some good stock selection, we've been able to do a little bit better than that. Um, and what's also interesting is the chart, which I'll have there, which shows um, the gold shares, GDX versus Barrett and Persimmon, since uh, January of this year. And uh, what you'll see is um, a divergence began to occur in mid-March, and uh, gold shares uh, are now up. Um, during this period, they're up 15%, and um, at the same time, these uh, 
UK builders are down about uh, 17%. So the gap that's opened up in just a few months has been over 30%. In other words, if you've been, and I'm ignoring some exchange rate differences here, but uh, keeping that with that in, in proviso, you, you actually are 30% better off if you're long gold shares compared with the UK builders. Tim, do you have a view on uh, UK housing? Well, I'm, I'm flat UK housing personally. Um, I think uh, UK housing, um, as well as most real estate, is a good example of how interest rates have multiple effects across the world. If I could uh, come back to that point, uh, if you don't mind, and just saying that you know, when interest rates rise to uh, a, a sufficient level, <laughs> the impact on financial investments generally is negative. Um, real estate would be uh, more so in the UK because uh, maybe many people are unaware that in the UK the large proportion of mortgages are still floating rate as opposed to uh, being fixed rate in places like the United States and many other countries. Um, so the impact of interest rates is even greater and more immediate. <laughs> um, but I think that the, the sort of five and a half percent levels, say, in U.S. Treasuries and the equivalent levels around the world are probably levels where these things will capitulate. And I think that's why you're seeing gold moving up, because as people fear those things, they tend to move into gold. Um, and the, the, the interesting thing to me about interest rates is that when interest rates move up, the impact is felt in so many different places that if you look at liquidity and why it's created, you'll see that actually increases in interest rates could trigger a reevaluation of how money is provided to the market. Um, my view, at least, uh, of liquidity these days is that although clearly banks provide li liquidity, there are many other um, quasi-financial, quasi-bank financial institutions, um, including some um, uh, sort of uh, marginal lenders and uh, hedge funds and uh, other uh, providers of capital, plus all the people that help them uh, determine how to provide it, like S&P and Moody's, the rating agencies. And the point here is that interest rates are a major factor in each of the risk models of those institutions that provide liquidity to the, to the, the market. When interest rates move up, everyone changes their models. And one of the things that it has an impact on is the correlation assumptions in those models. As interest rates move up, the correlations become higher, which changes actually quite radically some, some of the outputs from these models that determine whether people are going to get money or not. Jim, that's very interesting. Right? I mean, uh, so what you're talking about is perhaps the global tightening of credit. Correct. And, and what I'm saying is that when you get down to the basis of how people lend money or provide capital, it does come down to a risk view. And people are more sophisticated these days. They do have models that look at credit risks in banks and um, all kinds of institutions. Uh, the, these models are as good as exist in the market, but they're not perfect. And one of the areas where there are, I think, weaknesses is in the assumptions about correlation. Yeah, I, I really want to want to ask you a little bit more about that, Tim, if I can. I think sure. our listeners will find this interesting. Um, now, a lot of people who look at hedge funds uh, put together different types of hedge funds into a portfolio on the theory that 
hedge fund A and B and C are uncorrelated with each other, and when one's up, sorry, when one's down, the other two might be up. Now, are you saying that in, in an environment where rates are rising, that those, uh, those correlations will actually uh, all move in the same direction? Well, I'm not really speaking about hedge funds, which is another subject, a very interesting one. And correlations uh, in hedge funds and funds of hedge funds are a subject I study very carefully. But what I'm talking about now is the lending institutions, whether they be you know, uh, securities companies making uh, loans to investors on margin or uh, banks themselves or other people that help support those lending decisions like the credit agencies. What I'm saying is that the decision to lend money or not is based on, to a large extent, the way that those risks are correlated in a portfolio, whether it's a bank's portfolio or securities, uh, house risk uh, composition of their customers or, or any institution. So when the correlations become greater, your risk goes up phenomenally. So all, all these banks have been saying yes to their customers and giving them the money that they want on fairly easy terms over the last few years. And what I'm hearing from you now is a lot of those banks and lenders are going to be saying no. Is that right? That, that, that's right. At the, at the margin, that's happening. I think the, the question is everyone is, is trying to, 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 the question that everyone's find, trying to find the answer to is whether these kinds of different, different uh, liquidity provision of stopping lending is going to be something that spreads widely across the lending universe or is confined to certain segments. Okay, so we've seen, we've seen that in the U.S. certainly. We've seen a lot of no's uh, on credit now. A lot of people are being turned down for mortgage loans in the U.S. Correct. And uh, people in the U.K. now are saying, well, that's not going to spread here. But a few, few people are, are actually worried that it will. Uh, do you have an opinion on that? Yes, I mean, I, I think it will spread. Um, here, I think you have to differentiate between good uh, lending institutions and those that aren't. So the marginal people who, uh, you know, were lifted with the uh, water level moving up, um, you know, lifting all the boats at the same time, we're now going to see who's very good at this business and who's not. So um, if you're looking for people who are going to fail, then you probably look for the marginal institutions who may not have um, the, the best expertise in risk management. Um, and yes, but I, generally speaking, what I'm saying is, as interest rates move up, many things change in the lending equation, and that net-net will reduce the provision of capital, in other words, lending into the market, and reduce the liquidity that we've seen growing over the last two years. So we're very near, if not at, a turning point uh, in that liquidity provision. And given that liquidity has driven pretty much everything up, uh, that's rather a bearish uh, outlook. Yeah, yeah well, the, the lack of liquidity might then drive it back down again. Yeah, I think liquidity changes very slowly. And so probably what's happening today, uh, because many of the institutions are banks, they don't mark to market. Um, they only mark down a loan when it looks like it may not pay back. So what, what you find is there's about a three-month lag between when things actually are uh, in trouble and when you find out about them, when the market finds out about them. So I think probably there are many lending portfolios that are in trouble today, but we won't know about that and know the extent of it until about three months from now. And so that kind of ties into this whole idea that we're making a, a last um, surge 
uh, towards the fall when things will uh, tend to fall apart rather um, uh, rather strongly. But I mean, I think I think it's always a question of what information is available in the market. And what I'm trying to say is that this is not like a, a mutual fund where it's mark to market. You know today what happened yesterday. In the bank portfolios, there's quarterly, normally quarterly reporting. So you find out three months later what happened three months ago. Interesting. Mm. Very interesting. Well, that would tie in with Bob Hoy's uh, historical um, study, which shows that most um, market corrections or the biggest market corrections seem to take place in the September, October, November time frame. Well, sell in May uh, and go away. It sounds like um, maybe people should have stuck around a little bit longer to catch these, you know, market moves here in in the summer. But it might be time to to do something even more dramatic than go away. Might be time to get out. <laughs> <laughs> well. Uh, Tim, Michael, thank you very much for your time and uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you both and please come back on the show soon. Uh, thanks very much. I appreciate it. It's great Thanks, time. Dominic. And I invite people to come along to globaledgeinvestors.com and have a look at some of these charts and uh, also please uh, comment on what you heard. We'd, we'd really welcome your comments. Okay. Thanks very much, gents. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.